When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Mohamed Tonsi, who is the author of You Must Believe in Spring, a book that was published in 2022 by Hajar Press. Hello, Mohamed. Hi, Takeshi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've been very excited about this. Yeah, so uh, we have this little episode of bumping into each other. I, I just came across your author's talk at the Typewongers bookstore in Edinburgh. So like, mm. we decided to do this interview in person. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about how this book project came to be mm. and how you end up being a Typewonger bookstore in Edinburgh <laughs> <laughs> and how we met with each other to talk this interview? So, yeah. So, um, I mean, the book... Uh, the book... Uh, uh, I always feel like uh, trying to just talk about how I tried to start, uh, like, trying to start writing the book, which I came uh, to Edinburgh in 2016 to do a PhD. And, uh, yeah, I knew that I wanted to write a book about the Egyptian Revolution, about the role that memory plays, and uh, kind of about how, essentially, the past stories of the revolution were, uh, like, how they would echo into the future and the kind of legacy that that would leave because um yeah i don't know i was uh, the the state the egyptian state was uh, very quickly kind of like rewriting uh, the history of the egyptian revolution at that point and it was um, it it felt very dire mm-hmm. to kind of like put a bit of my personal experience within that space within that sphere down just yeah just uh, to not kind of like lose that thread of history that's very just deeply personal. When the state is rewriting the history, I mean, your story has many parts that actually shows that, you know, the autopsy report and all these um, rewriting, the literally rewriting the history of personal history of people who is involved in a revolution. What was your like a first thought when you decided to, all right, because the state is rewriting the uh, history, I'm going to write a novel. Like, mm. how do you, it seems there's like, what's the response that so, made you feel like writing the story is the best way to combat this mm. revisioning of the history? Just because it felt like uh, if, uh, like trying to use uh, sort of some sort of counter archive, but within the framework of an archive, to kind of like push back against the state mm-hmm. was almost all trying to play their game. It was almost like trying to respond to them by just kind of like saying, 
that's not what happened. This is what happened. And of course, kind of like that's very important work and it's important to kind of like put down in a historical sense. But I was kind of like more interested in the historicism, like mm-hmm. the historicization of uh, that happens in that process when you write down history. So rather than kind of like just to write down something that I kind of like perceived as just much, much more factual and true to history, because I mean, you're never going to be comprehensive, especially when it comes to like a revolution where kind of like millions of people marched in the streets. Everyone has a different story and uh, you're never going to be kind of like completely true to that. And I just didn't want to let myself fall into that trap and also Part of me, just because of my personal experiences, I felt like just deeply personally that it had to be a novel rather than an attempt to write history. Just because of my own personal like experience with trying to deal with the, the trauma mm-hmm. that came from it. Trauma just means that essentially you have uh, episodes of kind of like your own personal history mm-hmm. that don't filter kind of like very neatly into some sort of linear narrative. And this was almost kind of like a way to try to give space to that experience as well. Interesting. So the linear narrative that the historiography sometimes gives us, this happened, this happened, this happened, it's just really not helpful for us to reflect on this most traumatizing event. And the novel, writing fiction is really better way to cope with that. Yeah. And to kind of like just to... Yeah, to not only give space to those uh, those histories that have happened, because obviously, kind of like I, ha- I still had to do a lot of research for a lot of events that I wasn't there for, kind of like uh, that um, I do reflect on in the novel. Uh, so, kind of like I still had to do a lot of history to kind of like make sure that I wasn't making uh, stuff up as well, just because I didn't want to kind of uh, again do the same thing that the state was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, um, hmm, what was I going to say? Maybe I can add a question to this. So the genre of this novel is science fiction. Uh, like is it's a... uh, speculative fiction, I guess. <laughs> speculative yeah, 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 yeah. fiction, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's the different kind of types of SF, but it, it happens in the future yeah. that reflects on the back. Yeah. But the distance is close enough that we will arrive at the future very soon. Yeah. Right. So it has both recollective, but also like a projecting mm. at, at the same time. Yeah. How did you come up with this idea? So again, that was kind of uh, an idea because uh, I wanted to see kind of like where the legacy of the revolution was going to lead. And interestingly enough, like the whole idea of the project actually kind of like started out in an attempt to try to write uh, or try to imagine a utopia, mm-hmm. which obviously just quickly degraded because I realized <laughs> that it was a utopia that was only built for a privileged few. Oh. And so I, uh, that's kind of like when I decided to just uh, take a slightly different route and I wanted to make it reachable so that it was, yeah, so that uh, like readers can place themselves within the present um, and kind of like try to measure the distance between them and that future. How far is it? Kind of like, what are the what are the different uh, kind of like routes that we could take to maybe avoid that? Uh, and yeah, so just almost realizing your own 
place politically in the present kind of an like how do, how can we be a good how can we be good ancestors mm-hmm. to future selves right. you know and um, oh yeah and I remember what I what I what wanted, wanted to, to say. say before um, just about kind of like the whole sense of rewriting uh, history and kind of like the uh, writing of uh, revolutionary history so for example the um, the whole his- the the whole issue of uh, autopsies that uh, you had mentioned when uh, after the Maspero massacre when uh, yeah just uh, the army literally drove an RV through crowds of people and uh, killed uh, like i think it was yeah between 45 and 50 people that night uh, people went over to the Coptic hospital and actively tried to resist the um, state coroner's attempts to write down some sort of bogus uh, reason reason of death and to put down the actual reason, like uh, the actual cause of death. And that's just kind of like one example of how individuals interfered at that time and resisted the state narrative. So, like, yeah, just resisting the state narrative isn't something that only happens retroactively. It's a decision that you kind of have to make mm-hmm. as the events are ongoing. Purely from literally perspective. So it's a little bit politically incorrect, perhaps, but it seems like a lot of novels talk about how the current present narrative of the dead, when we started to utilize them for our purposes, mm-hmm things become bad, right? Yeah. So the Go- Gogol's Dead Soul, which inspired Osetsky to write all these novels to talk about the future of yeah. Russia as going to become this really dystopia. It seems like it fits with that thing that the state really wanted to say that people just stumble upon each other and and, 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 and they basically they, they fail yeah. right? on top of each other. Yeah, and yeah. And rewriting the entire what actually happened to these people. Essentially, yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, the state as well tries to present uh, the history from that point onwards as almost being uh, inevitable. Mm-hmm. That, uh, like, of course, people rose up because uh, they had enough uh, of what was happening uh, at that time. And, of course, kind of like the Muslim Brotherhood rose to power. And, of course, they fell because they were corrupt and uh, inept leaders. And, of course, the armed forces were going to come and save the day. Mm-hmm. They kind of want to present themselves as kind of like just yeah the inevitable successors to that history. So they painted the guardian of the people. Therefore, we should actually take the scepter. Yeah, and then turn into the next ruler. Yeah, which, exactly. Which and is the dystopia and then yeah disappointment of the masses. And more than anything, just because you you do at that point let go of uh, your ability to hold all of the narratives mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, that people held in their bodies during that revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this unclear division between facts and fiction mm. right, in, in the current um, history of, of modern Egypt, but it also happens in your story, it seems. You mentioned mm. in the beginning of the book that you, I really struggled to preserve which part of the history into... Mm. To write in this story, so like, yeah, I mean, obviously some parts are fiction, yeah, but then obviously some parts are mm. um, actual facts, yeah, right? yeah. How did you manage to 
make a right balance or that what's the method that you took to say okay this should stay in the book this should go out of the book i mean it uh, i didn't i didn't fictionalize the past uh, especially kind of like uh, major events i didn't fictionalize them i obviously just fictionalized like the characters as um, experiences but um, yeah i think i let Uh, to the protagonist's narrative kind of like uh, guide that mostly just because again I didn't want to kind of uh, be quite didactic with how I was kind of like presenting that form of history mm-hmm. and kind of like fall into the trap of historicizing in a novel mm-hmm. um, because essentially I wanted to leave space for the reader as well to kind of like engage with the narrative space so that they can um, connect with the characters because I feel like the first thing that gets lost when your stories are taken away from you by a state is that uh, kind of like you lose that sense of personal connection. You lose the ability to actually kind of like talk about those experiences. And that's what I want to, yeah, just have at the forefront as kind of like the most important thing. And uh, then, yeah, the fact that filter to the surface came with that. But, um, but yeah, because I think essentially the way that I see it, I mean, like right now as well, mm-hmm. we're uncovering like a lot of uh, histories in, uh, in an attempt to kind of like decolonize our sense of how we perceive the world around us, mm-hmm. kind of like the production of knowledge and uh, all of that. But uh, it's because kind of like, Yeah, the states and the kind of like the political climate is literally forcing people into dire situations where they have to contend with that and thus people are drawing out those histories. But, I mean, they're always there. People just have to look for them. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of why I left those gaps in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't want to try or purport to be exhaustive at all. It's like there will always be stories that are missed. There will always be stories that need to be uncovered. And there will always be people in the future who will kind of like find the need for it and then find a way to uncover those stories. Great. So I have a million questions. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. But recently I read this book by uh, Hishamata the, in the Country of Men, mm. which describes the situation in Libya. And it has the same tone of a dystopian mm. society where the main character's father is fighting the revolutionary fighter. And then the son escapes the uh, position to go to Egypt, actually, okay. to become a pharmacist. Yeah, right? yeah. And then, but entire process of leaving the country, it has this sense of like, you really shouldn't believe in a revolution. Like you should re- become as... Like how the whole system and narrative is mm. dragging you down to the sense of like hopelessness. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And then seeing this revolutionary that felt this amazing unity, blah, blah, blah. But then mm. they represent a failure to mm. succeed the brighter future. Yeah. The book ends with really ambivalent. Right? Okay. Because he welcomes his mother back to Egypt and then sees the mother and this like undissolved Mm. emotion wells up at the end 
Mm-hmm. But that's how the story ends. Mm-hmm. You know? So I'm wondering, how do you see your story with Egypt? Is there, is there mm-hmm. like this inexhaustible hope and a courage that is just it's going to be carried on? Because it seems like there is that, regardless of dystopia. I mean, def- uh, like there's definitely always hope. I I do feel exhausted a lot though. (laughs) (laughs) It's not it's not the infinite violence of, but it's it's impermanent. It just sometimes comes and sometimes goes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes comes and sometimes goes. And uh, the thing is, like, I feel like if we if we ignore our sense of despair, we also kind of like ignore a massive part of our humanity. Mm-hmm. The one that kind of like does feel disappointment, kind of like uh, when we do get hurt and when we do get knocked back, because those are, I mean, yeah, we were dealt a very tough defeat. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's over, but it also we can very much mourn that, and we can very much be exhausted by that, and we can very much be upset about that and feel all of the emotions. And mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, just because there's, um, I, I think sometimes I, I just try not to fall into the trap right. of um, almost that toxic positivity of like, oh no, but it'll be fine. Right. Like, uh, uh, because also kind of, because at the same time it uh, neglects to mention the weight and the amount of work of what we do have to do. If, uh, so, like, if we just, if we assume that the revolution is inevitable, like a successful revolution is inevitable, I think that's kind of like almost the most dangerous trap because people still have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And everyone will kind of have a role to play at that point. So I think, uh, yeah, it's not inexhaustible, but I don't think uh, that that's a failure. It's like these stories get passed down to future generations and then they will pick up the mantle because I mean a couple of years ago and even just kind of like uh, this past year when people were protesting in Egypt um, I mean those were uh, those are people who were what maybe kind of like were 10 years younger than they were kind of like at that point and a lot of them were in their late teens and young uh, early 20s so they were kind of like 10 or 11 or maybe younger kind of when the Egyptian revolution happened, they have a very different kind of like memory of that time and they have very different needs now. And for me to kind of like, uh, like or for, yeah, for me to kind of come along and be like, Anna, but I have kind of like previous grievances that I need to kind of like just deal with right now. I mean, those are important, but also things have happened since then. People also have different needs that also need to be and acknowledged. So yeah, what like one history does not supersede another, essentially. That takes me to another question. How would you like this book to be read today? Like the in, uh, mm. first of all, you write in English, so you're definitely intending to be read in mm. UK audience and North American audience that speak English as first language, and perhaps English as mm. a lingua franca. But it's quite bilingual text as well yeah, right? yeah. so you obviously thinking the egyptian diaspora mm. around the world to read this book yeah uh, like what's your intended target of target audience and also like how would you like it to be received um i mean i would like it yeah 
that's ah, oh, it's, it's a hard. Really like, question. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think you should. You know, so I'm not framing it in such way that this is the authorial intent that you should. Oh, yeah, this yeah, book, yeah, but it's yeah. like the what was your expectation when you finished? Finish I mean, writing? definitely, kind of like uh, my expectation was that like I know that it will be read by people in a privileged position because they will have access to English as a language that they can speak and read. Mm-hmm. Like there are. Um, uh, parts of it that are written in Arabic and like a uh, phonetic Arabic, so it uh, melts kind of like seamlessly on the page with the rest of the English, but obviously stands out for the fact that it just sounds different. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I kind of uh, just. But in terms of how I want it to be read, I I think I want it to be read mostly kind of like as. Uh, as a text that acknowledges the fact that uh, the language that we use and the way that we kind of like narrate our lives doesn't always reflect the reality around us. And that's not a failure for the language that we kind of like perceive around us. It's, uh, it's just that... Mm, All right, give me a moment. <laughs> take, take all your time. Here, yeah. yeah. Just that, uh, yeah, essentially just uh, that um, we can feel an alienation from uh, the language that we perceive around us, but that doesn't mean that uh, we kind of have to tacitly accept it. We can find ways to actually speak back to it and... Um, use that to kind of like reformulate ideas and thoughts in a way that attempts to like disentangle that power structure that seeks to oppress us. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, um, yeah. So like for me, for example, the bits in Arabic uh, that are interspersed throughout the text, I saw them as functioning on several levels. First of all, they impart onto the reader a sense of uh, alienation that uh, the protagonist Shahid might feel with the world uh, with the world uh, he perceives around him and uh, kind of a sense of alienation from the language that actually kind of like dictates his history because as he's kind of like narrating everything around him like obviously just everybody perceives him in a very particular way mm-hmm. and he's very self-conscious about kind of like how he presents himself Especially the uniform and the badges and yeah. all these things, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the uniform, the badges, and he has the ego pen to kind mm-hmm. of like portray some sort of affiliation. And he kind of like tries to humble himself, kind of like in front of people who he should humble himself to. And um, so, yeah, so he's being perceived kind of like. Uh, uh, in a very strict manner as he's kind of like also just trying to find some sense of freedom just from between all of that. So like, even though, yeah, the way that people who perceive him can be, uh, like can be very oppressive, mm-hmm. he still just manages to weave his own narrative out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a kind of leeway to the freedom yeah. through this, process of actually articulating what's actually happening around him. Yeah, and uh, just, uh, yeah, again, just uh, kind of like uh, using the language to try to weave a different narrative. Because, like, yeah, and uh, this was something that I 
wanted with the first person present tense is to almost kind of like make it seem inevitable that he's headed towards a destination mm-hmm. that kind of like will not change because he so he goes from uh, like he goes back home and then he kind of like takes this journey across the city and then uh, which leads to a journey across the country but it's all almost kind of like one way right yeah. and you kind of like don't perceive anything beyond that and i wanted the language in some ways to reflect that but also just to kind of like show some other possibilities mm-hmm. maybe ones that even he doesn't see mm-hmm. kind of like to appear through the cracks and i think for me just to kind of like the arabic maybe just embodies a bit of that just kind of like the bits of text that you kind of like ignore or only have access to within a very particular frame and uh, also that like the arabic that i used within the text is a very informal Arabic. So even if it were to be translated, like the novel were to be translated into Arabic, that text would still kind of like stand out as somewhat alien mm. to the rest of it. And that's uh, mostly kind of like a nod to like poets and writers who use a very informal dialect in their writing, like one that's not, uh, you know, that doesn't kind of like neatly fall into modern standard Arabic and uh, kind of like eludes censorship just because of kind of like the different colloquialisms that they might use. Because like in Egypt, uh, there are quite a few poets who use a very informal dialect essentially to just, yeah, try to like have some form, like uh, show some form of resistance to the hegemony of modern standard Arabic because, I mean, it is only accessible to people with a certain degree of education, mm-hmm. which much of the Egyptian population does not have. Right, yeah. So, so yeah. So, so this relationship between this authority and then the people in the streets, yeah. definitely there's a yeah. sort of differences in, yeah. even in the story. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, imagine just a kind of like... A, um, it's the difference between kind of like a, a BBC English mm-hmm. to kind of like a just a Glasgow English, where it's kind of like it's uh, it's very different. And if you yeah, if you try to kind of, and I just think of James Kalman in that sense, uh, who kind of like writes in a heavy Glaswegian accent, mm-hmm. almost kind of like that you have to read it out loud in order to hear the words that are being said, because sometimes on the page you almost can't decipher it, just because it's it's very different to what you would see on a page. And I just, I just find that amazing. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible just form of, yeah, just resistance to the limitations of the language itself, or just to kind of like show the boundaries within which you exist mm-hmm. that you're trying to push against. Right. Because obviously, yeah, like I, like I would not purport to kind of like say that this book kind of like breaks the boundaries of language. I, like I don't think it does that, but I think it just kind of like tries to like realize the, yeah, the limitations of it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how these naturally formed boundaries that people would have. And I think the revolution has this sense of this unity mm. beyond the differences, that there's a sense of togetherness, mm. right? But then your story shows up with immediately a checkpoint by the state, yeah. the boundaries that drew by... Arbitrarily. Yeah, arbitrarily drew by... And then there's always a sense of like, 
do we have anything with us that would get us in problem? You know, like the typical yeah. police stops for the minority yeah. men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Are we carrying any substances? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely clean. It crosses yeah. your mind. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like you see a police car, you're immediately like, wait, oh my God, no. How do I look? Right? <laughs> yeah. First of all, you have to actually look. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, exactly. Just kind of like, is my beard trimmed enough? You know, just that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. Yeah. So maybe I have maybe some small questions and big questions, but maybe small questions like the, one of the distinct characteristics of your storytelling has this sense of smell, mm. right? You start with this, mm. not using crawling, but like benzene yeah. to, right? So the image yeah. of the water and all these classical symbolism come in, but it's a strong smell yeah. of this Benzene, like gasoline smell, and yeah. then you have, you know, blood. Yeah. Right, and then you also have the smell of the, the smell lemon of tree. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, how did you come yeah. up with it? Like that should go into the story. I think uh, so. Like the gasoline, uh, the gasoline and the benzene. That was uh, something from, like, essentially just from real life. It's, okay. Uh, uh, it wasn't kind of like my generation that experienced it, but just uh, it was something that. Uh, like uh, older swimmers would um, would talk about the fact that they would essentially just to when chlor- when there was no more chlorine they would just clean the pool with benzene otherwise someone would have to break through kind of like a thick layer of algae mm-hmm. on top of the outdoor swimming pool and it would always just be the unluckiest swimmer who had to dive in first it's kind of like who's going to take the hits for the rest of the team right <laughs> but so like that detail came from that but i think just uh, i mean um, smells are kind of like the shortest pathway kind of like from sense to memory so I think that was largely just uh, from that and because in, so in Egypt and kind of like I think in uh, a lot of kind of like narrative centered around our cultures and even I think this is uh, also a stereotype that we perpetuate a wee bit that there's like in Egypt, we say that uh, we miss the smell of the dust. And mm. that that's kind of like the overwhelming sensation that you constantly feel. I mean, you exit an airplane when you land in Cairo and you feel like that massive heat wave just immediately hit. Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel nostalgic. But also, I just, um, yeah, I'll just... the. Uh, like the myriad of sensations that and uh, like uh, just senses that you can experience within the city just to yeah form a bit of a kaleidoscopic image mm-hmm. because you can get kind of like several smells at once and at once kind of like at one point in the narrative he smells the he smells tea mm-hmm. jasmine mm-hmm. and shit Right, exactly. at the same time right, 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 right. <laughs> and just kind of like I wanted to be able to kind of like present these different smells kind of like earlier on in the narrative like draw these kind of like massive spaces where like it feels like you're existing in a very spacious garden just because you can only smell the lemon tree Mm -hmm. you're feeling very confined within your skin because you can smell the gasoline that's on your body Mm -hmm. and then kind of like at some point those distinctions collapse Mm -hmm. as he goes through the city when he kind of like just uh, yeah just engages with the environment a wee bit more and engages with the people around him mm-hmm. and specifically kind of when smelling the tea jasmine and shit he stopped at another checkpoint 
where a guard is trying to just uh, or is uh, trying to show that uh, there's some sense of closeness between them, which is like obviously very put on and quite artificial. And there is uh, an underlying sense of just like something sinister is happening here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was just a lot of playing with that. Yeah. Do you, maybe this is a little bit more personal questions, but as you experienced this revolution, did you have a lot of friends that are on the other side of revolution? So I, 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 had, I had quite a few friends who were kind of on the opposing side uh, and um, they like would have a lot of arguments, some of them friendly, some of them not so friendly. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, it, uh, it seemed like, yeah, it felt at the time, obviously, kind of like uh, we were still very hopeful. So it felt almost kind of like somewhat benign. But then kind of like uh, as things started to shift and we were realizing that very quickly the revolution was like we were losing any grasp on it and that it was going completely out of control, those relationships did change. Mm-hmm. And especially kind of like with people who actively kind of like advocated for the system and some of whom are family members and with them kind of like it's, I don't know, like the revolutions, like victims have been many mm-hmm. and they're still suffering now. Right. And I think to kind of like hold even just a neutral stance or kind of like, oh, let's leave it as it is for now. This works for, this works for us. So, for now, stands just feels kind of unbearable. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but obviously, for a massive pro- uh, like proportion of the Egyptian population, they can barely afford to like feed themselves and their families. And work is scarce and mm-hmm. becoming even scarcer. Gasoline is ever more expensive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah. It seems like this character is living in a world where everyone is pushed to, to be on the other side. Yeah. Right? Because the other side actually took over and changed the entire narrative. Yeah. So he's preserving something on the past because of his relationship with his mother. Yeah. Which I really have many questions about. Yeah. But it seems like this is a typical of this society. It, it's not only in Asia, but when we recognize the problem of the superstructure. Yeah. But we are working under the superstructure. Right, and I'm in academia. And yeah. your book talks about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So it just seems like how do we actually preserve this sense of like compassion toward people who had no cho- choice but to be there? And, I mean, there's the ones that are just sort of like circumstantially being there. Yeah. Like the main character, and then the yeah. ones that you know there's something sinister and really malignant about this yeah. character standing in the, in a border. Yeah. Is your story trying to tell us how to cope with that world in which there's no clear boundary between the clear revolutionary that who believe in the spring and then those that really went against it. Mm, mm. Because it's now it yeah. seems so ambivalent, right? I think I I tried not to show kind of uh, I tried not to show it as a, as a sense of coping but rather a sense of survival. Survival. Okay. Like this is this is just how you work with the hand that you've been dealt. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because coping almost implies that the narrator has to kind of like put up with the people around him, 
but they're all they're all in it together. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like to portray almost that sense of moral high ground, which he does have. And that's something that I kind of like try at times to kind of like knock back a bit. Okay. But uh, yeah, just to, like that sense of like that sense of moral high ground is just untenable because uh, you, yeah, essentially he's also victim of circumstance. The fact that he's setting out on this journey to kind of like take back a, a, a small sense of control mm-hmm. over where his narrative might lead doesn't mean that that option is accessible to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Like most people are just trying to survive. Right. And that's what uh, like Nizam, the Sufi saint, mm-hmm. just uh, tells him when they're in prison. It's kind of like when, um, when Shahid just kind of makes a snide comment about uh, essentially just uh, people, people of faith who are coming to the prison to deliver food to the Sufi saint. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, just uh, Shahid makes a snide remark about them and Nizam is like, well, don't be harsh on them. Mm-hmm. It's like they're, they're dealt, an, uh, they're dealt quite, uh, like quite a rough hand. They just have to somehow survive with it. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to see the portrayal of uh, Sufism. Yeah. Right? It's not... So the current Western narrative of Egyptian authority, they argue that it moved from military fascism to Islamic fascism. Yeah. So the religious fascism, that's the shift that they made. Mm. But I don't think your book is very condemning mm. religion at all. In, in fact, it's just like the different mm. boundaries. And it's one of the boundaries is that mm. boundary. And yeah. there's something beautiful about them. Yeah, yeah. In some way, so it's very, and then the main, you know, the main character actually has to act like yeah. one of them. Yeah. At the end, so yeah. I just, how did you place that religion into this story? So that was something that I thought of when just to, uh, like earlier on thinking about the structure of the whole narrative, that I figured kind of like as time went on, Egypt would just be much more self-conscious about the image that it uh, portrays to the outside world. And Sufism kind of like has this mystical kind of benign aspect, especially towards uh, Westerners. Right. So that embracing that feels like um, the militarized state is trying to heal the rifts that they had created essentially between the factions in the days of the revolution without actually doing any of that. Because they're still like all of a sudden they're just uh, kind of like catering to a completely different eye. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of like in my mind. That was where, like, that was where that idea kind of primarily came from. And it was also after having studied just um, Sufism, kind of an uh, Ayyubid, uh, Fatimid, and uh, Mamluk Egypt, mm-hmm. where yeah, just how it was utilized by the state and how it was kind of like used to push back uh, against uh, like Sunnis and Shia uh, mm-hmm. Muslims who, yeah, who were decidedly kind of like anti the state at that time. So it's still kind of like a power play that the military is enacting to kind of like allow them to exist because they see them essentially as like, as is obvious in the book, just benign academics who are just arguing over <laughs> semantics. <laughs> right, right, right. It was, it was really fascinating how 
mother figure, right? The main protagonist's mother was going to the University, American University of Cairo, I think. Yeah. And she was doing a master's degree. And yeah. then you have this really patriarchal academia. And then yeah. she's doing this master's degree to nothing. And then she moves to overseas. Yeah. And then also observes the same problem, right? <laughs> yeah. It just seems like the, the, we escape as a refugee yeah. to a better life and so that we will be able to actually look at the problem in Egypt from outside with a critical view. Yeah, and, but, and, and there's kind of something in the past. Right. Yeah. But then it seems like the, the academic construct in, in the West is also incapable of penetrating into yeah. the soul of the problem. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, where it's kind of like it's still just content to like argue about details and not really try to like break the thing down apart and actually build up something new. Mm. But they're kind of like just invested so much in like the body of knowledge as it exi- as it exists, <laughs> and they kind of like use body of knowledge and uh, just to. Uh, you know, uh, capitalized scare quotes. Capitalized scare quotes. Just uh, yeah, as uh, just uh, something immutable and mm. like definite, which also just echoes the reality that Shahid, the main character, kind of like lives in, in the Sufi Institute, and especially kind of like um, them or like him trying to use. Uh, Mullah Sadra's um, philosophies, kind of like during the Sufi examination. So Mullah Sadra was uh, like, in particular, he was a Shia philosopher who had kind of like done massive amount of work in uh, the whole idea of being and becoming, that you kind of like perform acts of being and becoming in order to kind of like reach a sense of enlightenment, that sort of thing. and it's his own way of kind of like doing a bit of decolonization mm-hmm. within that sphere, but also one that falls completely flat. Right. So it's just uh, yeah. So it's just that kind of like thing about just the limitations of uh, actually enacting any or like limitations of uh, the kind of knowledge that you can build up within an academic sphere. Mm-hmm. And I think that was me just airing some of my grievances. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, PhD program, <laughs> the PhD program actually scores us to that. And I think, I think a lot of master's students and graduate students would definitely feel compassion toward those lines. <laughs> right. But would you... Well, I guess not. Maybe not look back on your creative writing PhD program, but also like the for the future. Mm. How do academics could do improvement when we talk about mm. the revolutions and also like mm. maybe step beyond the survival to make something more positively construct the future mm. in, in Asia, the Middle East, and even in in, in I think the academic yeah. atmosphere of the West. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I mean, the the easiest answer would kind of be to, like, center the center the voices uh, of uh, the people who actually lived through those events, but also it's kind of like it's it is not enough to do that as well because mm-hmm. uh, sometimes uh, and I don't know like this has sometimes been my experience where you're provided opportunities where you can actually kind of give a talk somewhere or kind of like participate in a project of sorts, 
but you're not given the funding. Mm-hmm. You're not actually kind of like given the proper means to do anything. And I think this is something that all academics kind of like suffer from. Yeah. So it's all well and good to kind of be given the space, but I feel like uh, academia relies on people paying their way through mm-hmm. to actually get to the point where they have access to that space. Right. And at that point, you filter, you've only kind of like uh, allowed to filter through just privileged people. Right who portray only kind of like one part of the argument. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, uh, I think it's... Structurally flawed. It's structurally flawed. It's structurally <laughs> flawed. Yeah. And uh, the answer kind of like, I've uh, kind right. of like stopped waiting on the, the West to, or kind of like the, mm-hmm. yeah, just the, and the global North to come up with an answer for how to do better. I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. And yeah. I don't think they will see us just because they're, not built to mm-hmm. and yeah i think it's uh, it's just important right now just for us to see ourselves and to actually kind of like have space to share those uh, voices and so like in egypt there are a lot of collectives and small communities that uh, are actively trying to yeah just gather together to just make sure that the people uh, like to make sure that people have access to knowledge in a way that is uh, that it is readily accessible to them. Like there are a lot of free workshops, for example, that mm-hmm. uh, um, can you deliver... name can you name them? Yeah. Or so like okay? there is yeah. So there is a reimagining Egyptology, for example. Okay. That's uh, one uh, community-led project that's uh, headed by like a few incredible artists and uh, community workers who just have managed to build up a community around them of people kind of keen on looking at um, Egyptian culture, Egyptian history, and kind of like how that's been built up in all its myriad ways and finding, yeah, and just finding ways to engage with it that are a bit different and fall outside of, uh, fall on the fringes of academia, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coffee Journal is uh, amazing for that as well, and they also use um, or, or like they employ several languages in the writing, and are also very much kind of like on the margins of uh, academia. They uh, so yeah, it's Coffee Journal, uh, uh, like a Journal of Body and Gender Research, and um, yeah. So they talk, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, and they center kind of like voices of people from that region, make sure to kind of like translate a lot of the writing. Mm-hmm. If it's written primarily in English, they've translated to Arabic. So it's accessible to people who also don't have access to English. And Anthropology Bil Arabi is uh, an Egyptian initiative to kind of like demystify like anthropology and make it accessible in accessible Arabic language that's not kind of like high informal yeah yeah it is interesting because this morning the I think it was Sky News or BBC talked about there's a new sphinx was discovered yeah. from the archaeological site but yeah. they haven't been talking about the aftermath of the revolution since like two years ago yeah because that was the you know 10th yeah anniversary then just yeah. like go back to this little default yeah. imagery of Egypt as this romantic yeah. other, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. that's uh, that's an image that um, like the state in Egypt is very aware of and is trying to actively push. Right. 
to just to show the glory of the Egyptians, to try to kind of like narrativize their own history, to show that we've kind of, yeah, just by emphasizing that glory, they place themselves within proximity to it. Mm-hmm. It was interesting, the, both in revolutions, but also like, I think it was the lecture that you gave with the Ted Pronger's mm. bookshops that you talked about when you returned to Egypt after writing this story, everything is gentrified. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and it really happened during the revolution too that they they just took off the tent and then get rid of all these trash mm. right, because the sitting is messy. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. they just started to put the green grass. Yeah. With the guards around it to make yeah. sure that nobody's gonna stick around. Yeah. Exactly. So it was very interesting to see how gentrification mm. is in fact sometimes extremely pro-state. Yeah. Pro-revised history. Yeah. And that's. Uh, and that's something that's actually caused me to have to rewrite certain parts of the narrative because there's yeah. one part of the narrative that occurs uh, along the banks of the Nile. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I had originally written it, that was all just kind of like craggy slopes, essentially. And uh, there you would find kind of like a lot of people putting up makeshift cafes and just people hanging out, that sort of thing. Just very, yeah, just very informal. Just people bring a bunch of chairs, a bunch of tables, and sit. And that's a cafe. Um, and now that's been built up into like yeah, uh, a promenade, a walkway just along the Nile that you have to pay to access. <laughs> okay. And uh, cool. it's uh, called uh, the Mamsha uh, Ahle uh, the promenade of... Uh, yeah, the promenade of uh, Egypt's uh, people, which uh, but only but only those who can pay for it, right? Yeah, and uh, they uh, uh, like uh, made it illegal for anyone to kind of like uh, conduct any sort of business there. So people who had uh, like just makeshift cafes there couldn't do that anymore. Boaters who would take people around the kind of like just uh, trips around the Nile and who had been doing that for some of them 30 plus years now have to pay i think it's around twenty thousand egyptian pounds a month to get a license What's to that work equivalent to uh so that's uh, the equivalent to i mean now it's uh, almost kind of like uh 700 800 pounds, pounds of, just wow. to that's a lot uh, yeah. that's uh, that's a lot especially for someone whose uh, livelihood is very uncertain and depends essentially on the amount of tourists and the amount of people who actually kind of like walk across to that part of the nile mm-hmm. and decide to go for a wee ride on a sailboat right but yeah so kind of like yeah just the gentrification just does definitely yeah go hand in hand with the state trying to show itself as improving for its people and in particular to try to show a clean image to outsiders. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because essentially what's uh, happening right now in Egypt is that uh, uh, like there's Musallas um, Maspiru, for example, which is uh, um, uh, part of the city that was uh, filled with uh, a lot of what the state would call informal housing. Uh, that was torn down to build up massive office blocks and residential blocks to just make it more appealing. With the, some of it supposedly kind of like being subsidized housing, but that gets bought up and uh, then kind of like uh, 
sold at exorbitant prices, making it completely inaccessible. So, but that's all kind of like made to show that the state is looking after its people. It's bettering the country. It's uh, bringing it into the modern age. Yeah. And recently there's also kind of like been the massive like mobilization of uh, central security forces and uh, troops uh, into Uluere Island, Mm -hmm. which is uh, an island uh, that uh, has like just mostly kind of like taken care of itself, uh, been uh, quite self-sustaining. It's mostly farmland, which is quite rare for it to kind of exist near the center of Cairo. And uh, the government is kind of intent on essentially demolishing all of that, removing its residents to build up kind of like some sort of technocratic city Mm -hmm. for the future. Yeah, so mirroring other rich Middle Eastern oil-based state, basically, that they want to go for that. Yeah, yeah, they're essentially trying, yeah, exactly. They're trying to imitate kind of like the Dubai Dubai, experience sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. But that's, I mean, how was Dubai built like that by a lot of slave labor? Absolutely, right? That it has the whole, yeah, yeah. so we're looking at the... Um, dark future in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I have two more questions. The last one is just very informal, but then last penultimate question, I'd like to ask you this. Would, are you translating this text into Arabic? Or is if there is going to be a translation, mm-hmm. would you let somebody do it or would you do it by yourself? I think I would let somebody somebody else do Someone it. Someone else do it. Yeah, right. just because, uh, like, uh, it's a different game, basically. It's a different game, yeah. and uh, I feel like I would just get too wound up and kind of like trying to rewrite bits and pieces of it to kind of like um, fit differently. So I think I would I would just leave it someone else and just and also just someone uh, trust someone else who has more experience with the writing long form fiction in Arabic than I do mm-hmm. which uh, I have zero experience in that so <laughs> yeah <laughs> I see like that uh, reminds me of uh, Umberto Eco when he was yeah. asked about the movie mm. it's a somebody else's child <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly. Yeah. exactly I need to give my child to somebody and then happy, they make the yeah. happy to give up a sense of control over that yeah um, so, unfortunately, we're coming to an end. So, I'd like to ask you, what's your next project? What are you working on? So, I've been uh, quite interested in uh, just uh, working on a bit of writing that's uh, delving a bit more into nature writing. I think some of it kind of like filters across into this book, but it's uh, mostly about uh, how the... Um, how there's a certain kind of like relationship between nature and Egyptians that fo- that's fostered by the states, and it's uh, because kind of like there's a very strong divide, kind of like between like the quote-unquote natural world and uh, the built-up world that um, the state strictly enforces. So if you want to go to kind of like any sort of natural reserve, you have to pass through a gate, you have to pass through a checkpoint. Your ID will be checked, and you kind of like are restricted in where you wander to very specific areas, unless you have a guide with you who has proper certification documentation from like the Ministry of Interior, the local police station, military intelligence. Oh my goodness! Which uh, just uh, makes a large part of the natural environment in Egypt just inaccessible. And given that we have, uh, these are not archaeological side or cultural side, but it's just. 
Some of them are, some of them are but okay. uh, uh, but not uh, kind of like. Uh, but even some that aren't, uh, and uh, some that are just strictly just massive open spaces. Like you're not allowed to kind of like go out into an open space unless you have very particular reason to do so. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of like curious about the kind of uh, relationship that that um, yeah strict binary between kind of like uh, uh, nature and city essentially. Mm-hmm. What that means for people and kind of like just the forms of resistance that arise and that just because uh, I think part of it is also just from my background in architecture like I was studying at the time that the revolution was happening and just seeing kind of like people essentially reclaim public space and just to engage with a place so differently mm-hmm. than what it was meant for I mean public space is like right now just completely eradicated mm-hmm. And natural spaces are kind of like the last hope of the bastion of the yeah. places they can actually get together as human beings. Basically. Exactly, yeah. but it's also kind of for the one place that the army is in, like, or the state, like, uh, I want to say, just is intent on conquering, kind of like again, just mirroring the whole Dubai thing where we kind of like build some sort of paradise mm-hmm. out of the sand, which is why they kind of like. The, uh, the new state, uh, like the new capital, as they call it, just in the desert, and are planning on kind of like laying down massive lawns of grass, which mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> not very water efficient for a country that's mostly desert. But yeah, are you writing this as a novel or nonfiction? Uh, so I started writing it nonfiction, but uh, I think uh, like there is a novel forming that actually might be taking bits and pieces of that research. Uh, but also, besides that, I have a fellowship uh, coming up, uh, hopefully, just and it's more about kind of like engaging with pottery. So right, you you work on ceramics as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, so just uh, kind of like uh, we'll hopefully kind of like have a chance to do a bit more ceramics work and uh, the. VNA down London, so that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. It uh, will be, yeah, from mid April to mid July. I also get to engage with their ceramics collections, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah. I just can't wait. Yeah, as, and, as you can see, I'm also like into ceramics. Yeah, I was admiring the piece <laughs> that you have. It's so gorgeous. Yeah, and I have to show you some Japanese uh, ceramics and how it's different from the Scottish style, but yeah, very great that you're working on so many different. Yeah. creative project at the same time and, and yeah. really good luck thank you with these projects um and thank you so much for talking to us about your book today no thank you for your incredibly thoughtful questions this was lovely i mean uh, when we met at typeronger it was uh, such a great discussion so yeah it was right it was just you... spark from that magical <laughs> yeah, science exactly. fiction world into this uh, <laughs> uh production well thank you so much mohammed no thank you takeshi and thank you, everyone. This was our discussion with, with Mohan Tonsi, who is the author of You Must Believe in Spring. See you next time.